The first thing Russians do in territories they've conquered is to take over the media, television, newspapers, and the internet. That's no coincidence. Propaganda is crucial to brainwash enough of the population to prevent revolts and to terrorize the rest into indifference and silence. Today, I'm looking at the role of a resilient media in countering Russian disinformation and aggression. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce. It will really help to increase the popularity of our content in YouTube's algorithms. The material is now being made also available on podcasting platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, Yugen Fitchenko is director of the Mohaila School of Journalism and co-founder of StopFake.org. He is also former Fulbright professor at USC Annenberg. The Mikhaila School of Journalism was created on a completely new basis, different from other Ukrainian schools. It was not a continuation of tradition, but designed to take the best ideas and techniques from around the world. The goal of the school is to produce people who will change Ukrainian journalism and help its transition as an ex-Soviet state into a pluralistic and democratic society. Welcome to the channel. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I'd like to start really with current events uh, and, of course, the death of the first and last president of the Soviet Union. Now, he will not be mourned in Russia as much as he is in the West, uh, of course, for his role in the breakup of the Soviet Union. But do Ukrainians have a different perspective on Mikhail Gorbachev and his legacy? Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting, but in Ukrainian, in Ukraine, probably he also is not mourned a lot uh, for for different reasons in Russia, because they consider he was not enough imperialist. And in Ukraine, because we consider him to be still a Soviet uh, imperialist, but not uh, very successful or imperialist that failed, so to say. And that would be the main reason. Even some people might say that it was uh, after his presidency when Ukraine uh, received its independence. But we look differently because we actually feel that Ukraine renewed its independence after Soviet occupation. And so for for many of us here, he would be the last president of an occupying uh, uh, power. And uh, that's, that's an attitude, even though I was uh, uh, watching uh, yesterday documentary by Mansky, which was uh, done uh, not long before he, dies, he died. And in many uh, uh, places through all the documentary, uh, Gorbachev is either singing songs in Ukrainian or he's just speaking in Ukrainian. And I, I'm even not sure if he realized that uh, for himself, you know, or is it kind of subconscious uh, uh, movements, uh, you know, but to some extent it was obvious that he, 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 he was a product of this empire, including he was always insisting and emphasizing his uh, Ukrainian origin. 
And of course, that would be another reason for some Russian chauvinists who would say, oh, he was not enough Russian. And that's why he broke up the Soviet Union, because he was Ukrainian. You know, So for, for them, he would be uh, too Ukrainian. And uh, for Ukrainians, he would be uh, not enough um, Ukrainian who was not sympathizing with what is was what was happening in Ukraine mm. in those years, and to to big extent he was complaining all the time that he had so many ideas how to preserve the Soviet Union, but the local elites in Baltic states in Ukraine were always on his way to conduct those reforms. And he was referring to that um, all the time. So he was unhappy with what was happening uh, at, the, at the periphery of the Soviet empire. And he uh, was considering that they, they were creating a lot of obstacles and uh, um, Local elites prevented him from 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 reforming Soviet Union into what he uh, he wanted to see. But uh, that probably describes the uh, um, uh, the attitude. And uh, for many people in Ukraine, it was kind of also the uh, kind of omen that while Ukraine is fighting this war of independence, which uh, uh, was uh, probably a little bit uh, uh, put off in space and time from 1991. So we are fighting it right now. And because Gorbachev is dying right now, just another sign that the Soviet empire is basically dying uh, as a concept. Mm, absolutely. And it's an interesting, I was speaking yesterday to a historian uh, and he made the point that you know, the, the decolonization of the British Empire was uh, varying success. You know, it was met with a lot of chaos. There was a lot of bloodshed, actually, and, and, and issues. But decolonization was a conscious decision uh, to go down that path. Um, you know, whether it was implemented well or not is another question. Um, but the decolonization of Eastern Europe was not a conscious choice made on the part of the Russian leadership. It was an accident of history, um, a sort of tide that they rose and could do nothing about. And the first time that Russia had the material to try and reverse that under Putin, that's exactly what he's tried to do, is to reverse that accidental collapse of empire. Yeah, and actually you would uh, never find, for example, uh, uh, Gorbachev uh, using even the concept of decolonization. Uh, it was not a part of his uh, vision of the world. And also referring back to this uh, Mansky documentary, he was insistently asking him, so how did you want to give more freedom to people in Baltic states, for example, and still reshape and preserve the Soviet Union? That's impossible because these two uh, scenes are opposite uh, in results and in the vision. And Gorbachev said, for me, it, it, it's a conflict for you, he said, referring to, to director, but not for me. So he didn't see even there's a conflict in this. And this is was one of his uh, biggest problems, because again, for people in the West, he's considered to be a big liberator who let the Eastern Europe to, to be free. It's not like that. Actually, Eastern Europe was fighting uh, uh, to be free, and he was trying to prevent it to become free. 
and we we've seen this as a bloodshed in uh, Baltic states, in uh, Baku, in Tbilisi. Uh, it it did not happen uh, in Ukraine, uh, but uh, again it was just delayed. That's exactly what we are dealing with uh, now, and that's exactly because. Uh, Russia was never also taking decolonization as a kind of serious concept to 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 live through intellectually and politically, and uh, of course you would not find it uh, this concept uh, uh, fitting well uh, either into current political regime in Russia, of course, uh, but also into many. Uh, or most uh, so-called liberal uh, minds of uh, uh, Russian intellectuals uh, living either in Russia or even living abroad for many, many years, they still consider uh, that there, there is no need for any decolonization of the political discourse in Russia. And uh, of course, there is no need to change the practices of how Russia is dealing with uh, uh, other former parts of the colony, uh, colonies, uh, with former colonies. So, and this is one of the reasons actually for this uh, current war. As I said, it was delayed, it was postponed, uh, but if we would look into the uh, kind of collective, uh, psych of Russian people, you still would uh, uh, find that they are fighting uh, the imperial uh, imperial war, even if they do not recognize it. Mm -hmm. and, and the timing is not coincidental either, is it? Because um, whereas the propaganda narrative says this is all the fault of NATO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, there's a much more interesting trend, isn't there, taking place, which is that last year, Ukraine was set for the first time ever to exceed the average earnings. Um, so what you're seeing here is, despite its sort of chaotic and at sometimes, um, you know, quite uh, frightening uh, sort of political changes that are taking place, uh, certainly frightening for, for, for Russians who, who don't seem to sort of be able to handle that kind of chaos and uh, complexity, um, they love the narrative that Ukraine was a failed state, that exactly. economically their stability, their form of totalitarian rule, at least provided some kind of economic benefit. But last year, reality uh, was set to overtake that and show that actually that sort of messy democratic evolution also produced a richer, uh, materially richer society. Uh, yeah, I think it was actually one of the, the biggest reasons for this war. And if we would go back now to a uh, period of February and March to all these uh, famous uh, memes with uh, uh, Ukrainian tractors uh, fighting back and pulling Russian uh, military equipment and Russian military personnel uh, stealing uh, washing machines. So that's basically about what what Russia was, uh, how Russia was angry about what Ukrainians achieved because as many Russian military uh, confessed in those uh, 
conversations we've been listening to. They they never witnessed that level of uh, economic prosperity back home. They've never seen, for example, uh, Western-produced tractors, which Ukrainian farmers uh, were using to 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 pull Russian tanks away. You know, so for them it was looking absolutely uh, miraculously something from from another life, and then it might be compared uh, to 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 the shock of the. Um, a Soviet military, which was uh, uh, liberating, occupying uh, Berlin, for example, because they also what they've seen was incompatible with what propaganda was saying to them, because propaganda was portraying uh, both Berlin and Ukraine as something which you know was absolutely uh, ruined by by fascist, uh, real fascist in Berlin and fascists they invented in Ukraine. And then their first-hand experience was completely different and then made them uh, uh, absolutely not only unhappy about what they've seen, but also revengeous about that. And uh, partly why they started to kill people, because they, they, they hated them for this uh, very reason, because these people were living uh, better than uh, them, and that was again unacceptable for representatives of uh, uh, former metropolia uh, who who are expected to live better than people living in the periphery of of the empire. So here we come back to to that kind of big uh, uh, ideological uh, constructs. Uh, and um, also, even generally speaking, we uh, would notice how uh, history was uh, central to uh, building this momentum for uh, Russia starting incursion for Ukraine. So uh, Putin was writing his essays, famous uh, uh, so-called historical essays, explaining that Ukraine never existed, that all Ukraine was created by Lenin, or that Ukraine was always a you know, hinterland of, of, of Russia, actually, that Ukrainians and Russians are the same uh, people. So all his kind of uh, uh, intellectual uh, activities, if we might say it so, they, they were concentrated around explaining to himself that there is no any Ukraine around. This, this is just a different type of Russia. And uh, I'm absolutely sure that he believes what he's saying. That's not like a uh, old Soviet kind of cynical approach to propaganda, which was uh, very widespread back into the last years of the Soviet Union, when people were listening to all that, and that was in my family, in many other families, and they just, you know, made fun of that. And, you know, all these anecdotes about secretaries general who were dying one after another, they became a part of the folklore. So nobody was taking already that. And it was a, a more, more fun that kind of the serious perception. There was no any kind of the ideological bubble. And uh, yes, we, 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 uh, back then we had a, a deficit of information. But we had plenty of, of uh, uh, rational understanding of the world around us, even when we were children at that point, you know. And now we see a completely different situation when Russians has access to any kind of information. Everything is, is open. You don't need to 
kind of secretly listening to the BBC World Service to get the latest news, but they just don't care about what, what they hear or what they read because they already have their perception how the world should be uh, constructed and uh, adjusted to, 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 to their expectations. And, so what's uh, happened? I mean, so the propaganda techniques that we're seeing, the narratives that we're seeing, um, they not only work or did work in Ukraine, they also work in other countries, Italy, Hungary, Serbia, the Middle East, Africa. We see different approaches in different countries. But unlike the Soviet propaganda, which, as you say, nobody believed by the end, there is a lot of belief and acceptance in the various narratives that are being pumped out. So what's the role of journalism in trying to immunize people against this toxic propaganda? Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, you are right, because uh, to to big extent, uh, uh, Russian disinformation is constructed in the same way as Ukraine, as, uh, as, uh, as a Soviet disinformation. And uh, I've been doing research of this, and I have found a lot of similarities in approaches and, and narratives. For example, the narrative I mentioned about uh, Ukrainian as fascist is not new. So it was used in, in, in Soviet uh, historiography very uh, effectively as well. Uh, but uh, what was different that uh, disinformation is successful when it falls on the kind of uh, uh, prepared ground, so to say, when when people hear what they actually want to hear. And uh, also another reason for people taking seriously Russia and Russian disinformation was that people started to cultivate this kind of very rational approach to Russia. Like there is no more Soviet Union. So there is no this kind of ideological uh, um, disinformation and other things. So now the world is immune to all this. So everything which is happening since that moment, you know, since the fall of Berlin Wall and um, uh, breakup of the Soviet Union is, so we start everything from the scratch, you know, and that's completely different Russia. So it's very rational, uh, money oriented, you know, and uh, that increased the trust actually. And uh, because, people trusted to Russia because they, they wanted to trust, because uh, uh, to some extent, they uh, uh, during Soviet years, they were quite afraid because of the you know dangers of uh, potential uh, nuclear war and uh, uh, the war in Western Europe and other things. And then when the Soviet Union disappeared, uh, they said, oh, great, there is no more danger. So we should relax, you know, we should start thinking about, you know, liberal economies and Russia is a part of this liberal economy. We should make it a, a part of it. We should interconnect it. And then there would be no problem to dealing with them. And also there was another problem because a lot of uh, uh, diplomats and statesmen, uh, uh, those who participated in all these negotiations at the very last stage of Soviet Union, they also been considering that to be very rational. We've always seen the word negotiations. We've been negotiated with the Soviet Union and agrees on that and that and that. And it's 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 absolutely baseless. Uh, it's pointless because 
at that moment, Soviet Union was at the state when they could not uh, uh, negotiate anything. They, 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 they ran out of any resources and so they, they cannot come to these negotiations with any kind of high stakes. Uh, and that explained everything. So they, uh, they, they gave up uh, nuclear weapons or you know, biological weapons. They did not do that, but they promised to do that because they just didn't have another uh, political option at that moment. Uh, and also they just needed money from United States, from Germany, and they basically sold the opportunity to unite Germany to, to German people and to break up the, the, the Berlin Wall. So it was not a, a political movement. It was not a, a kind of gesture of a goodwill coming from Gorbachev. And then uh, everybody was very grateful and Germany was saying, oh, danke, Gorby, you know, great job, thank you so much. And so it was absolutely wrong assessment of how it happened and why it happened. And now in the West, people just do not remember how it was happening. And as a, a Soviet kid, I do remember there was nothing to eat in the Soviet Union. And that's why the Gorbachev approach to, to, to dealing with the West was like it was. Because, of course, it would be completely different if the Soviet Union would have additional resources to continue the Cold War and continue the evil empire uh, behavior and other things. They just ran out of resources. And so they wanted to, to buy those resources from the West. And that's exactly what happened subsequently. So the West was subsidizing uh, the growth of Russian revanchism. Uh, and uh, yes, they became the, a part of this kind of globalized economic system, but with their own reasoning. They wanted to use the money and resources from the West and the atmosphere of political openness, uh, not to become a part of this, but mm. to uh, deceive basically, to use this kind of, uh, uh, bad Soviet Union versus good Soviet Union approach, you know, to sh throw some big uh, uh, scenes like perestroika, glasnost, and everybody was happy with that. Oh, it's a new thing, and you know, everything changes, you know, forget the Cold War, it's all, you know, the, 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 the ideas from the past, now everything would be different. And for Russia, it was not different. It's and marketing, that's why, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's why Putin became a president. Yeah. And there's another because big they difference. They did not yeah. want to be different. They just wanted to use this opportunity to have some kind of uh, a period to, you know, to relax and beef up resources and then to attack the West, but from the completely different, posi different positions. And of course, I think something that's not uh, that well understood is that uh, the key differences between Ukraine since 1991 and Russia is that you know, both societies started building some of the institutions for civil society. That process has actually accelerated in Ukraine. But in Russia, the process of building the foundations of civil society, uh, reforming the courts, the law, the executive, that process actually went into reverse uh, in the 2000s. And from about 2012 onwards, uh, one by one, all those institutions um, of civil society have actually been threatened or shut down. So could you describe a little bit about your, 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 um, your thoughts on the differences of those two trajectories of the evolution of civil society? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it took two completely different uh, paths. And uh, as, a, as a journalist, I uh, was uh, witnessing, for example, how uh, the media segment of civil society was uh, growing in Ukraine. It was uh, uh, absolutely uh, small compared to Russian in terms of the number of uh, media outlets and number of journalists and uh, uh, amount of money also the Western uh, donors uh, invested in, in, in the development. So it was two completely different stories. And uh, Russia was uh, at the end of 1990s, at the beginning of 2000, was boasting how powerful journalism they have because they like inherited this tradition from, from the Soviet system and then they improved it. And that was, again, the key uh, problem with that, because you cannot improve the Soviet institutions. You need to kill them uh, completely. You need to get rid of all those people who were running those institutions, and you need to start from the scratch. And that's exactly what happened in Ukraine. So in Ukraine in 1990s, the journalism was very young, very energetic. We had very, very few people inherited from the Soviet system. So we were not... Uh, reforming it. We were building it from the scratch. For example, I was working for Intern News and we started the first non-governmental news service in Ukraine. And when we entered the newsroom, my first question was what kind of the editorial rules here are? And I was said, you can do whatever you wish, you know. So that was the, 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 the frames of my liberty. I can uh, look at the uh, journalistic profession as a kind of endless possibilities to tell the truth to people. And even at some point, I remember my colleagues were going to Moscow to kind of learn from their kind of, it was called senior colleagues, senior partners like from stations like NTV, which was very progressive, very uh, aggressive with, uh, you know, keeping their fingers in the Russian political process and with, you know, Gusinski as a kingmaker and Berezovsky. It was very, very kind of dynamic environment. And they were teaching my colleagues, you know, how to do journalism. And the irony was that all this, those people who were sharing their knowledge and experience with us then became the best servants of uh, Putin's uh, disinformation. So. If you remember the first scene, what Putin did was to make NTV completely different, to uh, uh, take it away from, from, from uh, oligarchs and make it quasi-state uh, uh, news mm -hmm. series. So it was his, basically, the first you know, public step. And it was very, very um, kind of self-explanatory mm. because he saw them as the biggest obstacle for him to usurpate power at the later stages. And all those people who then went to his, this meeting, his first meeting with journalists and TV journalists, all of them, except very few, became the, the cornerstone of his uh, propaganda machine, mm -hmm. which means they were never kind of authentic in their uh, desire to build something completely different, not to continue with Soviet journalism, and propaganda, but to be independent, real mm -hmm. journalists. So for them, it was as a for Soviet Union, there was some period to have rest, you know, and to get resources 
and to change, you know, the old uh, Soviet, uh, uh, you know, unacceptable uh, ideological shores for something, you know, uh, looking completely different, but being absolutely the same mm. uh, in terms of the content of, of this concept, you know. And that's what happened to many other areas. And there's, uh, again, as I said, Western donors were happy to, you know, invest a lot of monies into different institutions and reforming and believing that this is the center we need to work with. And people in Ukraine or in, in Baltic states, it's a kind of minor periphery. So everything important is happening in Moscow. So we mm. need to be there. And that, you know, then uh, kind of brought uh, the whole generations of Western media attention to the Moscow as a kind of center of everything in the post-Soviet space. Foreign journalists who made their careers working out of Moscow mm. and sometimes kind of describing Ukraine as a some peripheric, uh, you know, people, funny people, you know, trying to speak their own language and, you know, all this. And of course, that that will affect how journalists see the world, even if they're trying to be objective, even if they're trying to understand what's going on. If they only talk to Russians and they live and exist in an intellectual sphere, they may be trying to purge their thinking of all those imperial ideas but it's almost impossible to report on Ukrainian events or events on the periphery if you've got that sort of Moscow lens, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, those attitudes were uh, continuing well into 2022. You know, it would it it even did not end in 2014 when when the actual the war started. So for us, the war did not start this February. For us, the war started back in 2014. So we are fighting it already for eight years. But for many, many journalists, it did not make any difference. And they still were considering that Moscow is important mm. for, for, for this as a, as a place, as a vintage point from where to look at what is happening. And of course, as you said, there's an intellectual uh, uh, kind of... Uh, uh, environment was defining how they uh, uh, write about this, how they report about this. And also it was all very, even if we talk about relatively young people, young journalists, they were very, how to put it, uh, Soviet-centric, I would say. So they were still looking at this from very kind of Soviet perspective. Mm. I remember a lot of uh, Moscow-based journalists were very nostalgic about Soviet trains, for example, or how we can take this, you know, Plotskart open train, you know, and then travel around Russia. And so, for example, they were very nostalgic when Russian railway said, we discontinue those uh, uh, carriages, you know, old Soviet carriages. Oh, it was so nostalgic, you know, and, and many other scenes. So it was very, very kind of Soviet uh, at its core. And it continued uh, what I call uh, a Durante tradition of uh, reporting uh, uh, Ukraine. I mean, the journalist from the New York Times who was covering uh, famine in Ukraine in 1930s from Moscow and basically denying that it's happening. And to some extent, I, uh, I could see the continuation of this you know, tradition. And I've noticed how some journalists are just uh, 
making, you know, their careers, you know, writing books and doing some, you know, academic careers around this, just because this is a mainstream. So Ukraine was not a part, was never a part of this mainstream. It was always kind of a marginal. And yeah, sometimes they uh, took travel to Kiev and they always said, oh, it's such a great atmosphere over there. It's a kind of a very south feeling place, you know, it's like Odessa and all this, but it's also very imperial uh, kind of attitude because it's like, you know, go from the north to the south, you know, and it's it's all everybody is relaxed, and it's uh, you know this you know Russian Empire architecture around, and everything is so familiar from books, you know, from Russian classical music. So it's all about great culture and some small annoying Ukraine, you know, which is basically. Mm-hmm somewhere on the way of the normal relationships, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and this was kind of uh, inuit of Ukraine and annoyance of Ukraine, which and was it, preventing it, to look at, uh, at, at this with kind of eyes wide open. And literature is the same. Literature and history is the same, isn't it? It's the- Yeah, it, absolutely, the, absolutely. So only now, only now we see how the world is kind of discovering, oh, Ukraine ha- ha- has some, uh, you know, books uh, even around, you know, oh, and Ukraine had some composers whom, mm. whom I think, you know, whom I thought, you know, that, yeah, there might be composers in Ukraine because we thought that Ukraine is about peasants, you know, and mm. uh, about, you know, waiters and uh, nice restaurants and here you can open some, some culture. Mm. And uh, so that's what the war changes. But unfortunately, the price we are paying for this is very, very high to, to map you finally Ukraine uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a country. We need to survive through, through this war and people are paying with, with their lives to, uh, to compensate this uh, ignorance, which was uh, around for years and years. So uh, again, as I said, for many people, Soviet Union never uh, collapsed, ne- never disappeared. It just, you know, changed the form and the name. Uh, and some of the people were just looking at this as as uh, most Russians are doing as some kind of temporal uh, arrangement. Like, well, Ukraine wants to play this independence game. Okay, we can wait, you know. And uh, uh, so, but sooner or later, the things would be okay again. You know? mm-hmm. So, and uh, th- this approach was very, very widespread. And talking of that, of course, I mean, Ukraine did not move back into the Russian sphere. In fact, it's moving further and further away. And the election of Zelensky pushed it far further away from the, the Ruski Mir uh, than before. Um, so, when it comes to uh, the two projects you're involved in, which is uh, the School of Journalism and StopFake.org. Let's start with the School of Journalism. Um, if Moscow cannot be a template for how you educate and build that, do you look to other Western countries as a sort of template for the development of your journalistic education, or are you trying to create something unique for Ukraine? Yeah, uh, absolutely uh, right. So when we created the school, and uh, we created it from the scratch, the idea was that we need to get rid of everything Soviets 
from all this heritage of uh, journalism education as actually preparing people to participate in propaganda or just some literature, because that was kind of two to 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 uh, ends of this uh, spectrum. If you do not want to participate in propaganda, then you can find your kind of uh, uh, your seclusion at some kind of literature activities, and then using the Zop language, you can you know try to say a truth. So we we said, okay, we don't need that. We want to throw away all the kind of Soviet heritage of uh, journalism, literature, everything you know, and build something completely different. Looking, of course, at the existent models of how uh, journalism is taught. So, of course, it was not about inventing bicycles, because uh, everything is already invented. You just need to to look in different places. And we've been talking to uh, our colleagues in in many parts of the world. In, in from Leeds University, we invited them to come to help to start the school. We've been looking into Columbia School of Journalism. Uh, uh, we invited people from all over the world to come and teach and bring pieces of very different systems of teaching journalism uh, because it's different everywhere, but we wanted to find out what would be the most suitable model. And uh, also it's always about uh, kind of showing the model. So what we want to get uh, at the end. So when we explain to students, look, this is a piece of great journalism where we are going, We've never been using any Russian uh, media, of course, because we did not consider them to be a place where you can find the real journalism. So it was always my uh, opinion, even if some people were saying, oh, but of course in Russia you can find Medusa and you can find Doge. So for me, both Medusa and Doge are just continuation of the Soviet journalism. It might look a little bit funny and more, more vibrant, you know, but in terms of their ideology and how, including how they present news about Ukraine, for me, they are the part of the same pattern. And that's why we never would be using any examples from uh, that. And also my point was that uh, media system in Russia would be dying. And I said about that years ago, and then I had a lot of, uh, you know, fun and smiles coming from all parts and saying, well, that's against this Ukrainian chauvinism, uh, nationalism, uh, uh, you know, because in Russia you can find a lot of great journalism. But the problem is that now in Russia you cannot find any journalism, you know, neither good or bad journalism. Mm. You can either find Russian propaganda, which is absolutely kind of a huge bubble, which uh, uh, is uh, absolutely... I mean, Russian journalists are either... Yeah. Mean, good or journalists you can find dead, some Russian they... journalists living and working abroad, but they yes. have uh, nothing to do with Russia. Yes. They, they, are not, uh, they are not talking to any audiences back in Russia. So that's why they are completely irrelevant and they can do absolutely marvelous things. If they do, they do not do that. Uh, but... Uh, Media is always about uh, uh, audiences to mm -hmm. whom they uh, to whom they talk. So I frankly I don't know to whom they talk. Working in Riga, in uh, Paris or Prague, anywhere you know, I I don't see their audiences because their audiences are living in Russia, and they are watching Russian television, you know, and they uh, support the war against Ukraine as a biggest result of this, you know, as they support Putin. They support existing political regime, and they are co-participants uh, of this war. Mm. 
And uh, so definitely from uh, the point of view of building uh, some model for School of Journalism, we've been looking somewhere else for, for, for inspiration and for, 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 for models. And definitely we have found plenty of uh, mm. great people, great examples. And we also have a lot of uh, great alumni since uh, the beginning of the, the creation of the schools and are working everywhere. And this is very uh, special for me because now when I see who is covering this war, it's covered by young people who graduated from places like my school, who are never related to anything Soviet, uh, anything Russian. They've never been watching Russian television or any other type of television already, you know. And they're, they're completely different people. Their minds are wired in a very, very different way. And that's exactly what we needed. So that's about the generation, uh, uh, even not generation gap, but generation changes, you know, so we've seen how diff very different generation of people came to do journalism, and that completely changed the whole uh, uh, journalistic profession in Ukraine. It's 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 absolutely unresembling anything you can you can now find in Russia or you could could find in Russia ten years ago or mm -hmm. fifteen years ago. It's absolutely different, and uh, and it's great. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, you know, many people, especially the generation you talk about, uh, would have potentially taken their statehood, their independence of Ukraine for granted because they've they, they were born into an independent country. But everyone since 2014 has really come to, I think, appreciate and understand what that freedom really means in a way that probably Western Europe has not yet realized. Yeah, and I think it's another big difference with Russia, because over there we see how a lot of people who never witnessed Soviet Union uh, are supportive of Soviet Union, uh, Stalin, uh, uh, his purges, and all the things they've never witnessed. And in Ukraine it's completely different, because uh, the new generation, even if they've never witnessed uh, Soviet Union firsthand, they are not only not supporting this, uh, but they are complete opponents of this. They do not accept it from uh, ontological point of view. They uh, they are absolutely opposite to this. And even if they've never been beyond reality of have Ukraine as their country around them, they are fighting now because they 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 not because they they. They know that it can be different, and there were periods when Ukraine was not there. But just because that's the only value they would love to support. Mm. And the other thing, coming back to what you mentioned about NTV, the journalists, of course, you know, a few were kicked out. I think uh, Dmitry Kisilov, and there are a few others who who left, uh, and uh, you know, to an extent, sort of preserved their reputations. But most stayed. The other thing that was closed down, of course, was satire. And one of the first things Putin made sure didn't carry on was satirical television, satirical shows, satirical journalism. Is there a big difference in Ukraine there as well? Has that sphere of creativity increased and and, and, and done well over the last 30 years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, probably one of the um, uh, biggest difference if we would compare, for example, now and 
back in 2014 and earlier years it's a huge uh uptick in 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 humor in mems in uh, so it's it's not only about the creativity it's about very different approach to the perception of the reality and uh, that's about that's about free people so they can die for this system if they wish defending their country on the war or they can laugh about something which is laughable from their point of view or they can criticize their government and make uh, memes about them or they can throw this government if they do not consider it to be uh, relevant anymore what else can be called freedom Absolutely. My last question really relates to the other area of your activity, uh, and that is stopfake.org. Can you describe a little bit the origins of that project, what it does, how it works, and how does it counter uh, the narratives of propaganda? Yeah, so we started Stop Fake back in 2014. And for us, as I said, that was uh, one of the key dates uh, on a calendar, because that was the beginning of this war. And when the war started, we realized that disinformation is integral part of this war. So probably at that point, we did not look at it as, as a hybrid warfare or cognitive warfare or other kind of big concept which, which can be borrowed from military studies. But we were looking at it from a journalistic point of view because we realized that on one hand, there is no, not much Ukrainian information uh, because Ukrainian journalists and Ukrainian media were not prepared for this war. Uh, and on the other hand, Russians realizing that there is this vacuum of information, they were trying to accumulate as much as possible of disinformation and propaganda over there. And it was obvious for us. So as, as observers of this media space, it was immediately obvious that we, if we do not need, uh, do something very, very quickly, that might be a huge issue, uh, which which would jeopardize the, 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 even our kind of existential uh, being, you know. And uh, that's how we started to fake to use uh, fact checking uh, as a tool to fight disinformation. So we look at every separate piece uh, of uh, uh, information coming from Russia through monitoring. And if we find it not to be true, we write the explanation why it's not true, and then try to disseminate to as many people as possible using social media, television, um, any other channels which we might find, including offline lectures and workshops and other scenes. Uh, so it was about two scenes. First, very tactical, how to stop disinformation right now and a more long-term um, objective, how to, to educate people, that not all news or not everything they consume from uh, media ecosystem is actually the real news. And at that point, it was a big challenge, you know, because uh, people were taking everything for, for granted. And as the beginning, we said that about people uh, in the West and in many other areas that they were taking for granted everything which was coming from Russia. And the case was with Ukraine as well. So people here were also taken uh, for, for face, at face value, everything they've heard or watched, you know, and all Russian TV channels were present, fully present in Ukraine at that moment. All social media like Wiki and Maklasniki. So Russia had developed multiple platforms and 
entry points to Ukrainian uh, media users. And uh, the idea was that we need to to, to to understand how big the system is, how it works, to map the main players and try to, to do something about those influences. And I think we were very, very successful and we came to this February well prepared. We already had um, complete understanding what we are fighting with. We had complete understanding who the midline actors are on the Russian side. Uh, we also had a great team of people. We had a methodology developed. We had big audiences on social media. And we had also a lot of partners in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine, who also participated in all this. And also Russian media were absolutely discredited by uh, 2022 because they were lying constantly. So it was just a question of time when people would just stop buying what they uh, want to sell to them, you know. And I think uh, February became kind of a threshold for those people who still were hesitating, you know. For most of them, it was a kind of eye-openers eye-opening moment and they they changed their opinion but till uh february of course still were a lot of uh, whom we might call putin fishtails and those people again as i said who were looking at ukraine as some kind of annoyance which was uh, an obstacle to better relations between the west and russia uh they are still around some of them and now i see their voices again become more more heard, so yes. they're not keeping a low profile anymore as it was back in February. And of course, Russia is exploiting those voices for their own benefits to explain why not to support Ukraine, why to not to trust uh, Ukrainians, you know. And so basically they are trying to, again, to eliminate Ukraine from mm. the political map by using very different instruments like sowing doubts about Ukraine. Mm. And they'll use uh, gas as well, gas, food. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Trying to get the West so, to be yeah. selfish. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So they just uh, trying to explain to people that now they need not to support Russia and what Russia is doing, but they just need not to support Ukraine because that would influence their personal well-being, you know, their, uh, you know, profits of their companies and their temperatures in their apartments and other things. So it's basically about uh, blackmail. And that's exactly what we've been discussing at the very beginning that the West did not understand the real intentions of Soviet Union. And it's just the continuation of the same game. The stakes are the same. So Russia just wants to preserve its influence by any price. You know, it's not about Ukraine, by the way, for, from Russian point of view, it's about the the influence they want to have their, their influence as a final kind of objective of, 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 of this war. They want to influence Western Europe, they want to influence uh, United States, and they want to influence public opinion in, in the global south. So they are not even hiding that. They are openly speaking about this, and they would be using all instruments, including blackmail, as we said. Uh, and uh, that would be more and more obvious the closer we uh, come to, 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 to winter. So it's not about some big issues like, you know, Ukraine and Lenin, you know, it's not about NATO, 
expansion. It's about preserving this uh, this influence. And also, I'm afraid that they would try to to use the same trick as it was used with you know Gorbachev and uh, uh, Perestroika. So they would create the crisis, and they then would you know offer some uh, person less evil than Putin. And, uh, and the whole cycle begins again. Doesn't yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah. So we are going in circles. It's nothing new. I mean, from my point of view, I do not. Uh, it's very hard to surprise me, and I do not see anything new in this uh, kind of mm. political configuration. So they would come with something less evil, with someone more, a little bit more. Uh, uh, kind of uh, acceptable for the West, and the West would be happy and say, "Oh, we we entering the new st- period of our relations in new Russia. Everything changes, you know, and Ukraine is not important anymore again, you know, because we have this kind of main uh, as it can be compared with kind of main ad- adversarial. So it's a main partner, you know. Yeah, but so, what has um, changed? I mean, what has changed is these techniques. And the knowledge that you're talking about in Ukraine. So is there a role now for Ukraine to become an exporter of knowledge and counter propaganda techniques to the West? Yeah, so of course Ukraine is is building its kind of uh, subjectivity and uh, its role, and uh, so more and more people now are not looking at Ukraine through Russian prism, but mm-hmm. through kind of independent prism for Ukraine. You know, but it doesn't mean that Russia is disappearing. I mean, this optics is still there, and it's still very very dangerous. And again, I'm afraid that those things which are uh, obvious for people who've been uh, kind of observing Soviet Union, people in Baltic states, in Poland, in, in Czech Republic, mm. in Slovakia. It's obvious for us, but very often it's not obvious, obvious for the West. And they are still uh, cannot comprise what kind of game uh, Russia is playing. And they are still rationalizing and looking at this from very rational point of view. But that's completely wrong approach. To, to 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 evaluate the situation and I'm afraid they they, they, they just can get into this uh, trap uh, again. I think that really underlines the importance of the work you're doing and I think we could almost certainly talk for hours and hours but I think we've probably reached the end of this segment. Um, it's extremely interesting and the work you're doing is is extraordinary. I really hope to get the chance you know that we get to speak again and of course, I hope that victory comes sooner rather than later. Um, so thank you so very much uh, again Thanks for speaking again. to me. Huge, yeah, huge it's pleasure. It's a great pleasure. And Slava Ukraini. Here I am Slava.